Good morning, family and friends. We are in Revelation chapter 19 and 20 now. And we'll be wrapping up Revelation, hopefully sometime this week. The title of this is The King and His Kingdom. And uh, I think mankind's major question for centuries has been how... How is this all going to end? Historians have studied the past, hoping to find a clue, hoping to understand the future. Philosophers have tried to penetrate the meaning of things, but they have yet to find the key. And then the, the prophetic word of God, as it says in 2 Peter 1.19, shines like a light in a dark place. And on that we can depend. So here in Revelation 19 through 20, John has recorded key events that will take place before God wraps up human history and ushers in his new heavens and earth. So in verses 1 through 10, when Babylon fell on the earth, the command was given in heaven, rejoice over her. And then Revelation 18, 20 What we read in this section is heaven's response to that command. The word alleluia is the Greek form of the Hebrew word hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. And this is heaven's hallelujah chorus. It will be sung for three reasons. God has judged his enemies, number one, in verses one through four, since the great harlot or the great whore of Revelation 17 was destroyed by the beast and his fellow rulers. In the middle of the tribulation, the great whore referred to here must be Babylon the Great. Comparing chapter 17-2 with chapter 18-3, the connection is obvious. Both the apostate religious system and the satanic economic, political system let the world astray. Definitely led the world astray and polluted mankind as well. Both were guilty of persecuting God's people and also martyring many of them. So the song emphasizes God's attributes, which is the proper way to honor God. We don't rejoice at the sinfulness of Babylon, and we don't even rejoice at the uh, greatness of Babylon's fall, but we rejoice that God is true and that God is righteous and that he is glorified by his holy judgments. So as we discovered in Revelation 8, God's throne and altar are related to his judgments. And then in Revelation 19, verse 3, it should be compared with Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11. And Revelation 19, 4, with Revelation 5, 6 through 10. So in verses 5 through 6, the literal translation is, The Lord God Omnipotent has begun to reign. And this does not suggest that heaven's throne has, has been empty or inactive because that is not the case. The book of Revelation is the book of the throne. 
and the omnipotent God has indeed been accomplishing his purpose his purposes on the earth. This burst of praise is, is an echo of Psalms 97:1, the Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice. So God has been reigning on the throne of heaven, but he is now about to conquer the throes of earth as well as the kingdom of Satan and the beast. So in his sovereignty, he's permitted evil men and evil angels to do their worst. But now the time has come for God's will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Domitian was emperor of Rome when John was on the Isle of Patmos. One of his assumed titles was Lord and God. How significant it must have been then to John's readers that the that he used the word Alleluia four times in the first six verses of this chapter. Truly, only Jehovah is worthy of worship and praise. In verses 7 through 10, the bride is ready. The bride, of course, is the church, and Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, he is the bridegroom. At, at a wedding, it's customary to focus attention on the bride, but in this case, it's the bridegroom who receives the focus, who receives the attention, who receives the honor. So let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. What many will say at a wedding is, well, what did the bride wear? Well, the Lamb's bride is dressed in, quote, in the righteous acts of the saints. That is a literal translation. And when the bride arrived in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, she was not at all beautiful. In fact, she was covered with spots, wrinkles, and blemishes, according to Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 27. But now she is radiant in her glory. She has made herself ready for the public ceremony. Jewish weddings in that day were quite unlike weddings, say, in the Western world. First, there was an engagement, usually made by parents, when the prospective bride and groom were quite young. And this engagement was binding. It could not be broken other than some type or form of divorce. Any unfaithfulness during the engagement was considered adultery. So when the public ceremony was to be enacted, the groom would go to the bride's house and claim her for himself and would take her to his home for the wedding supper and all the guests would join that happy couple. Well, this feast could last as long as a week, but today the church is engaged to Jesus Christ and we love him even though we have not seen him. One day he will return and he will take his bride to heaven. At the judgment seat of Christ, her works will be judged and all her spots and blemishes removed. This being completed, the church will be ready to return to earth with her bridegroom at the close of the tribulation to reign with him in glory. And I can give you Luke 13, verse 29, and Matthew 8, 11 as a reference. Some students believe that the entire kingdom age will be the marriage supper.
Supper. But in verse 9, it contains the fourth of the seven Beatitudes found in the book. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. And certainly the bride is not invited to her own wedding. The invitation goes out to the guests, believers from the Old Testament era, and from the tribulation. During the eternal state, no distinctions will be made among the people of God, but in the kingdom age, differences will still exist as the church reigns with Christ and as Israel enjoys the promise messianic blessings John John was overwhelmed by all of this so overwhelmed that he fell down and worship, worshiped the angel who was guiding him an act that later repeats in Revelation 22:8 through 9 and of course worshiping angels is wrong as we see in Colossians 2:18 and John knew this But we must take into account the tremendous emotional content of John's experience. Like John himself, this angel was only a servant of God, as it says in Hebrews 1.14. And we do not worship servants, as we've read, as we read in Acts 10, we do not worship servants. Christ will return in John described the conqueror, Revelation 9, 11 through 16, and then his conquest in 17 through chapter 20, verse 3. So the rider on the white horse in chapter 6, which we did speak about in chapter 6, is the false Christ. But this rider is the true Christ. He's not coming in the air to take his people home. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, but to the earth with his people to conquer his enemies and establish his kingdom. Note the emphasis on Jesus' name in Revelation 19, 11 through 13, and also verse 16. He is faithful and true. In contrast to the beast who was unfaithful and false, he broke the covenant with Israel. He ruled by means of deception and idolatry. suffering saints need to be reminded that God is faithful and will not desert them because his promises are true. Possibly the secret name in Revelation 19.12 is the same as the new name in Revelation 3.12. Not knowing what this name is, we can't really comment on it, but it's exactly, I mean, exactly, it's exciting to know that even in heaven, we're going to learn new things about our Lord. So the word of God is one of the familiar names of our Lord in scripture. Just as we reveal our minds and our hearts to others by our words, so the Father reveals himself to us through his Son and the incarnate word. A word is made up of letters and Jesus Christ is Alpha and Omega. He is the divine alphabet of God's revelation to us. The word of God is living and powerful. What's more, it fulfills his purpose on earth. Jehovah himself says, I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Just as the word was the father's 
agent in creation, as it says in John 1, verses 1 through 3. So the word is his agent for judgment and consummation. Christ's most important name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is his victorious name. And it brings to mind references such as Daniel 2, verse 47, also Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. Paul used this same title for our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Timothy 6.15. The title speaks of Christ's sovereignty, for all kings and lords must submit to him. No matter who was on the throne of the Roman Empire, Jesus Christ was the king and he was the Lord. The greatest of Christ, the greatness of Christ, is seen not only in his names, but also in John's description of the conquering king in Revelations 12 through 16. And then in Revelations 1, chapter 14, the eyes as a flame of fire symbolize his searching judgment that sees all. The many crowns indicate his magnificent rule and sovereignty. The vesture dipped in blood speaks of judgment and probably relates to Isaiah 63, 1-6, and Revelation 14, 20. The conquest of his enemies. So it is not our Lord's blood that marks his vesture, but that of his foes. The sharp sword is a symbol of God's word. And this is in keeping with the fact that Christ will consume the enemy with the spirit of his mouth. See 2 Thessalonians 2.8 and also note Isaiah 11.4. We have met with the rod of iron before in Revelation 2 and Revelation 12, a symbol of his justice as he rules over the earth. The image of the winepress must be associated with the judgment of Armageddon. Jesus is not alone in his conquest, for the armies of heaven ride with him. And some might say, well, who are they? Certainly the angels are part of his army. But so are the saints. Jude describes the same scene in Jude 14 through 15. The word saints means holy ones. And it could refer to believers or angels. It will be unnecessary for the army to fight, for Christ himself will defeat the enemy through three great victories. He will defeat the armies of the kings of the earth, verses 17 through 19 and verse 21. These warriors have assembled to fight against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalms 2, verses 1 through 3. But their weapons prove futile. The battle turns out to be a slaughter, a supper for the scavenger birds. The first half of Revelation 19 describes the marriage supper of the Lamb. The last half describes the supper of the great God. See Matthew 24, verse 28. The word flesh occurs six times in this paragraph, while John's immediate reference is to the human body, eaten by the vultures. There is certainly a deeper meaning here, 
man fails because he is flesh and relies on flesh. The Bible has nothing good to say about fallen human nature. Recall the Lord's words before the flood. He said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Genesis 6.3 All flesh is as grass, it says in 1 Peter, and it must be judged. This is the account of the well-known battle of Armageddon, which was anticipated earlier in chapter 14. All that our Lord has to do is speak the word, and the sword of his mouth will devour his enemies. He will defeat the beast and false prophet. See verse 20. Since Satan's henchmen are the leaders of the revolt, it's only right that they be captured and that they be confined. So they are cast into the lake of fire, Revelations 20 verse 10, also verses 14 through 15. The final and permanent place of punishment for all who refuse to submit to Jesus Christ. The beast and false prophet are the first persons to be cast into hell. Satan will follow 1,000 years later. Revelation 20 verse 10. To be joined by those whose names are not recorded in the book of life. Revelation 20 verse 15. Today, when an unbeliever dies, his spirit goes to a place called Hades, which means the unseen world, that is, the realm of the dead. When believers die, they go immediately into the presence of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, also Philippians 1, verses 19 through 23. Hades will one day be emptied of its dead, Revelation 20, verse 13 who will then be cast into hell to join Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. Satan will be defeated. The bottomless pit spoken of in Revelation 21 is not the same as hell. It is the abyss that we have met before in our studies. See Revelation chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 17. Satan is not cast into hell immediately because God still has one more task for him to perform. Rather, he is confined in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. He was cast out of heaven in Revelation 12, verse 9, and now he's cast out of earth. Some Bible students feel that the chaining of Satan took place when Jesus died on the cross and arose from the dead to ascend to heaven. While it's true that Jesus won his decisive victory over Satan at the cross, the, the sentence against the devil was not yet or has not yet been affected. He is a defeated foe, but he is still free to attack God's people and oppose God's work. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Paul was sure that Satan was loose, Ephesians 6, verse 10. And John agreed with him in Revelations 2, verse 13. Having taken care of his enemies, the Lord is now free to establish his righteous kingdom on earth. In, verse, in chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, the saints will reign. The, the phrase thousand years occurs six times in Revelation 20, 1 through 7. 
This pending, or excuse me, this period in history is known as the millennium. The 1,000 year kingdom of Christ on earth. So at last, Christ and his church will reign over the nations of the earth and Israel will enjoy the blessings promised by the prophets. Is this a literal kingdom on earth or should these verses be spiritualized and applied to the church today? Some interpreters say that the term a thousand years is simply a number meaning ultimate perfection. 10 times 10 times 10, 1,000 equaling 1,000. They assert that it's a symbol of Christ's victory and the church's wonderful blessing now that the enemy has been defeated and bound also. And this view is known as a millennialism, which means no millennium. That is no literal kingdom. The problem with this view is that it does not explain why John introduced the period with the resurrection of the dead. He was certainly not writing about a spiritual resurrection because he even told how these people died. And in Revelation 20, verse 5, John wrote of another literal resurrection. If we're now in the thousand-year kingdom of victory, when did this resurrection take place? It seems reasonable to assume that John wrote about a literal physical resurrection of the dead and a literal kingdom on earth. So what is the purpose of the millennial kingdom? For one thing, it will be the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel and to Christ. Our Lord reaffirmed them to his own apostles in Luke 2 or 22. This kingdom win will be a worldwide display of Christ's glory when all nature will be set free from the bondage of sin. See Romans 8, 19 through 22. It will be the answer to the prayers of the saints, thy kingdom come. It will also be God's final demonstration of the sinfulness of sin and the wickedness of the human heart apart from God's grace. But more on this later. The tribulation martyrs will be raised from the dead and given glorious thrones and rewards. The church will share in this reign as symbolized by the 24 elders. Some Bible students believe that the Old Testament saints will also be a part of this first resurrection. As it as we see in Daniel 12, 1 through 4. The phrase general resurrection is not found in the Bible. On the contrary, the Bible teaches two resurrections. The first is of the saved and leads to blessing. The second is of all the lost and leads to judgment. So these two resurrections will be separated by a thousand years. Revelation 20, 16 describes the special blessings of those who share the first resurrection. They did not earn these blessings. They are part of the believer's inheritance in Jesus Christ. This is the sixth of the seven Beatitudes in the Revelation. Excuse me, in Revelation. The final one is in Revelation 22, verse 7. 
These resurrected believers will share Christ's glorious life, reigning as kings and priests with him, and never experience the second death, the lake of fire, or hell, whatever you want to call it. Revelation 21, uh, 20, verse 14. During the millennium, the inhabitants of the earth will include not only glorified saints, but also citizens of the nations who bow in submission to Jesus Christ. See Matthew 25 and also Matthew 8. Because of the earth's perfect conditions, people will live long lives. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, especially verse 20. They will marry and they will have children who are outwardly conform to our Lord's righteous rule. But not all of them will be truly born again as the millennium progresses. And this explains why the enemy will be able to gather a great army of rebels at the close of the kingdom age. See Revelations 20 verse 8. For many centuries man has dreamed of a golden age, a utopia in which the human race will be free from war, sickness, and even death. Men have tried to achieve this goal on their own and have failed. It's only when Jesus Christ reigns on David's throne that the kingdom will come and the earth be delivered from the oppression of the enemy and sin. In verses 7 through 20, I mean 7 through 10 of chapter 20, Satan will revolt. At the close of the millennium, Satan will be released from the pit and permitted to lead one last revolt against the Lord. And you know, some people are saying why, I'm saying why. A final reproof that the heart of man is desperately wicked and can be changed only by God's grace. Imagine the tragedy of this revolt, people who have been living in a perfect environment under, under the perfect government of God's Son will finally admit the truth and rebel against the king. Their obedience will be seen as mere fiend submission and not true faith in Christ at all. The naming of Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 verse 8 does not equate this battle with the one described in um, Ezekiel 38 and 39. For that army invades from the north while this one comes from the four corners of the earth. So these two events are related, however, inasmuch as in both battles, Israel is the focal point. In this case, Jerusalem will be the target, the beloved city, as we see in Psalm 78, verse 68. God will deal with this revolt very quickly and efficiently, and the enemy will be cast into hell. Note that the beast and the false prophet will still be suffering in the lake of fire after a thousand years. See Matthew 25, verse 41. In one sense, the millennial kingdom will sum up all that God has said about the heart of man during the various periods of history. It will be a reign of law, and yet law will not change man's sinful heart. Man will still revolt against God. The millennium will be a period of peace and perfect environment 
a time when disobedience will be judged swiftly and with justice, and yet in the end, the subjects of the king will follow Satan and rebel against the Lord. A perfect environment cannot produce a perfect heart. God is now about to wrap up human history. One great event remains. In 20 verses 11 through 15, there shall be a second resurrection and the unsaved will be raised and will stand before God's judgment. Don't confuse this judgment at the white throne with the judgment seat of Christ, where believers will have their works judged and rewarded. As this judgment, there will be only unbelievers and there will be no rewards. John described here an awesome scene. Heaven and earth will flee away and no place will be left for sinners to hide. All must face the judge. The judge is Jesus Christ, for the Father has committed all judgment to him. See Matthew 19, John 5, and Acts 17. These lost sinners rejected Christ in life. Now they must be judged by him and face eternal death. From where do these dead come? Death will give up the bodies, and Hades, the realm of the spirits of the dead, will give up the spirits. There will even be a resurrection of bodies from the sea. No sinner will escape. Jesus Christ will judge these unsaved people on the basis of what is written in the books. And somebody might say, what books? For one thing, God's word will be there. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. You know, I've often said that myself. We, there is, we don't judge one another. The word judges us. Every sinner will be held accountable for the truth he or she has heard in his life. You will be held accountable for the truth you've heard and what you've done with it. There will also be a book containing the works of the sinners being judged. Though this does not suggest that a person can do works, any good works sufficient to enter heaven. It does not suggest that. In see Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 and Titus 3 verse 5. Why then will Jesus Christ consider the works good and bad of the people before the white throne to determine the degree of punishment they will endure in hell? So all these people will be cast into hell. Their personal rejection of Jesus has already determined their destiny. They don't even really have to be judged. The Word of God has judged them already. They'll be judged, as, as I just said up here, through the degrees of punishment. But Jesus Christ is a righteous judge, and he will assign each sinner the place that he deserves. There are degrees of punishment in hell. See Matthew 11, 20 through 14. Each lost sinner will receive just what is due him. And none will be able to argue with the Lord or question his decision. God knows what sinners are doing, and his books will reveal the truth. The book of life will be there. 
containing the names of God's redeemed people. No unsaved person will have his or her name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Only true believers are recorded there in that book. And when the judgment is finished, all of the lost will be cast into into hell, the lake of fire, the second death. Many people reject the biblical doctrine of hell as being unchristian, and yet Jesus clearly taught its reality. And I'm going to give you those scriptures. Matthew 18, verse 8. Matthew 23, verse 15. Verse 33 in chapter 23. Chapter 25, verse 46. Mark 9, verse 46. A sentimental kind of humanistic religion will not face the reality of judgment but teaches a God who loves everyone into heaven and sends no one to hell. Hell is a witness to the righteous character of God. He must judge sin. Hell is also a witness to man's responsibility. The fact that he is not a robot or a helpless victim, but a creature able to make choices. God does not send people to hell. They sin themselves by rejecting the Savior. See Matthew 25, verse 41, and John 3, 16 through 21. Hell is also a witness to the awfulness of sin. If we once saw sin as God sees it, we would understand why a place such as hell exists. In light of, the, in light of Calvary, no lost sinner can condemn God for casting him into hell. God has provided a way of escape for each and every one of us, patiently waiting for sinners to repent. He will not lower his standards. He will not alter his requirements. He has ordained that faith in his son is the only way of salvation. So we must have faith in Jesus Christ and believe what he did at Calvary how he paid the price for us at Calvary. The white throne judgment will be nothing like our modern court cases. At the white throne judgment, the new heavens and the new earth in verses 21 and 22 will be a judge. There will be a judge, but no jury. A prosecution, but no defense. A sentence, but no appeal. No one will be able to defend himself or accuse God of righteous unrighteousness. What an awesome scene it will be. Before God can usher in his new heavens and earth, he must finally deal with sin. And this he will do at the great white throne judgment. You can escape this terrible judgment. I want you to know that. You don't have to go here. You can escape this terrible judgment by trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And... And so doing, by so doing, you will never be a part of the second resurrection or experience the terrors of the second death or the lake of fire. And the Bible says, he that hears my word, that's what Jesus said, and believes on him that sent me, he has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation or judgment, but is passed from death unto life. John 5 verse 24. 
So I guess my question in closing this chapter of Revelation 19 and 20 would be this. Have you trusted him and passed from death unto life? You need to look into your own heart. You need to maybe ask the Lord to help you search your heart so you know if you're in right standing with God. Because one day Jesus is going to come for you, whether it be come literally to take the church or come because you die and you're, you're going, that it's over for you then. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So have you trusted him? Do you know that your heart is right with him today? Do you know that heaven will be your home? Because once you die, there is no more chance for making that decision. It's over. It is totally over then. The Lord has made all the provision that we need for eternal life, not only for eternal life, but for a safe, secure, abundant life of peace here in the earth. So I ask you again, have you trusted him? And have you passed from death unto life?